I handed out uh, a sheet on, on our website on phase two of um, Frontline. One of the first videos is an overview of the Tanakh, which is our Old Testament. And so you'll see it here. If you go to, so you have Torah, which we understand, Math, uh, Matthew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Nevi'im, divided into two parts, right? Former prophets and latter prophets. Former prophets, often also called the Deuteronomistic history. That is the, the monarchical history of Israel in light of the book of Deuteronomy and ultimately their failure. Um, I think it's also very prophetic. These are prophetic books on the macro-typological level at which we've talked about. Um, so you have Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Everyone sees where I'm at? And then down there you see the latter prophets. We have three major prophets and then the book of the Twelve. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So we did not study Jeremiah and Ezekiel in this time through, but we did Isaiah. And then we're going to pick up the 12 minor prophets. Why are they called minor and major? Exactly. It's m only about size, not importance. So minor meaning small. They're just smaller books. Um, and so then you go over to the Kitavim, and you have the, the Psalms. Uh, so this is not divided the way that it is. So this is not broken down. I'll get you a, a nice breakdown. So you have um, the poetry, which is, uh, which one? I think it's Psalms, Proverbs, and Job are in a collection together. And then you have the five scrolls, where you have um, uh, Ruth is in there, uh, and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and two more. And then you have Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then it ends with First and Second Chronicles. That's all in the, the Ketuvim. So I'll give you another handout next week um, that shows you all, all the breakdown of the writings, and we'll review that next week. But now we're going to be looking at the Book of the Twelve. Uh, ancient sources say that there were, um, I don't know if it was 22 books in the Old Testament at the time, which means that these 12 books were considered as part of one collection, uh, one book. And so they've always uh, existed independently. You have uh, individual superscriptions for each of the 12, but they've also always canonically gone together as one book. And what that tells us is the, the individual superscriptions, the, the individual authorship of each one says that there's something to be learned on the micro level of every one of these prophets. But the way that they've been put together and included in the canon says that there's also a big picture story that we can glean from these 12. And so you want to study the minor prophets on both levels. You want to study them as individual books. And you also want to study them as uh, one twelfth, each one is one twelfth of a greater anthology, which is called the Book of the Twelve. And so there's two different orders for the Book of the Twelve. As you can imagine, you have the Masoretic Order in the Hebrew Tanakh, and then you have a slightly different order in the Septuagint. And there's theological reasons for each order. We're going to be reviewing the, the Tanakh order, but if you find out that you really love the minor prophets and you want to say, well, I'm kind of curious to know 
why the Septuagint orders them differently and you want to understand the, what is the theological harvest that can come out of studying the, the canonical order of these books, then uh, I would just encourage you to do some further study on your own. Yes, Duncan. Yes. Yeah, because the Book of the Twelve is one book. So the Book of the Twelve falls in the same place as the Septuagint order of, of the canon, but the actual order of the individual prophecies in the Book of the Twelve, we have the Masoretic order. It's, it's interesting, yeah. And you can thank Jerome for that. I believe. So it's confusing. I have a book on that. If you're curious to know more about that, I'll loan you the book. Um, but yeah, it's, this is all very fascinating, right? Because it tells us that there's more to be learned when you step back from the Bible and just see its composition, see its structure, see the, the forest for the trees, then you begin to glean different theological messaging. And I would, I would say my personal conviction for the book of the 12 is that God wanted to use the same prophetic books, 12 different prophetic books in two different anthologies to share with us more or less the same message with different emphases. So I personally think that both the Masoretic Hebrew Tanakh and the Septuagint canonical orders and, and even their translations are inspired by God either in the writing or in the editing phase and the collection phase and that there's theolo theology to be gleaned from both. And the reason I would say that is God clearly spoke through the Hebrew writings, clearly spoke through the Hebrew canon, but our New Testament attests to the fact that God was also speaking through the Septuagint. And that's sometimes a struggle for us because we just want one autograph, thank you very much, the original and only the original. And yet we see God working in the scriptures themselves through these two different traditions that are related. I mean, the Septuagint is considered a Masoretic text. It's a translation of a Masoretic text, so it's, it's part of the Masoretic tradition, which I can't get into that now. But all that to say, if you're interested in canonical studies, big picture stuff, I'm just opening the door for you to let you know that there is such a thing and that there's theology to be gleaned from that, which always comes down to the question, where is the theology in the Bible? Is it in, is it in the canon, like the big structure of the canon? Is it in the books, one book at a time? Is it in pericopes, par chapters, parables, so on? Is it in the words? What is, what is the container that carries the freight of the theology? I would say all of the above. And for 100, 200 years, we've been looking at such microscopic, atomistic pieces of the Bible. I just think it's time that we step back as a church and say, wow, there's something to be gleaned by the big picture. Um, let me pray, and then we'll get through to this. Obviously, with 12 books, we're doing very big picture today. I mean, we have been the whole time, but even more so, very big picture, kind of main structure, big ideas, general flow. And my hope is that one or two of you will say, you know what, I want to know more about the minor prophets. That's a part of the Bible that I would like to become a pseudo-expert in. And I'm going to give myself a year, two years, where although I'm going to be reading the Gospels and I'm going to be reading whatever is being preached from the front or whatever, but I, I really want to become familiar with the minor prophets. And 
in a church, it's really helpful if you have a handful of guys that are doing a little extra study over here and a handful of guys are doing a little extra study over there. And then we get to know who's really learning about what parts of the Bible and then we can draw on one another. So if, if the prophetic corpus, that is the books of the Bible that are in the prophetic part of the Bible, uh, interests you, then maybe you want to pick a, an Isaiah or a Jeremiah if you're in that company. Um, or, or maybe you want to pick the book of the 12. The nice thing about taking the book of the 12 is it breaks down into 12 nice, neat boxes. So you can become sort of an expert in one book and then move on to the next, and before you know it, you have some handle on all 12. So if that's you, I'd love to resource you. Come and talk to me. So that's my hope today, to give us all sort of a big picture and maybe to whet the appetite of one or two of you to say, my gift to the church is going to be a little more study in this area. Yes, Duncan. Right. Uh, it, in the Septuagint, it's a major prophet. So you might like the Septuagint order if you want Daniel to be a prophet. Um, but it really comes down to the fact that it's added to the canon late. Uh, he was, he was um, uh, a post-exilic prophet, like he w went into exile, so an exilic and post-exilic prophet. But indication is, because Daniel lands in the Kitavim, the book itself was added to the canon, that is authoritative scripture, late. And that's why. So by the time you get to the translation, those Greek scholars that are translating the Hebrew Bible are like, this is a long book, and it's a prophetic book, and they put it in with the major prophets. Comes after Jeremiah. So that's a good question. All right, let me pray, and then let's take a look at the book of the Twelve. God, I thank you so much for your Bible, and I know that we're in a part of the Bible that doesn't often get touched, and I pray today specifically that maybe there's one or two men here who are drawn to the prophets, and maybe to the book of the 12, and that their contribution to our learning and our spiritual vitality would be just a little more time and a little more energy given to these 12 books. Uh, I pray that you would help me uh, to give us a general orientation to the book of the 12. Uh, help me to keep my mind clear and straight. Help my language to be concise and, uh, and helpful. And more than anything, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to see who you are and how you work in history and, and the words that you've preserved through your servants, the prophets. We pray that we would see the fullness of this revelation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, here we have the book of the 12. You see all of the books together. You can see which books are longer, which books are shorter. The shortest book in the Old Testament is Obadiah, coming in at, I think, 18 verses total. Um, so when you, if you want to become an expert in a book, pick Obadiah and just study the heck out of it, and then you'll be an expert in Obadiah, and you'll be able to teach us all about it. Um, but the color code here is blue is prophets, pre-exilic that are focused in the north. Red are pre-exilic prophets focused in the south. And green are prophets that are unknown or post-exilic. So for example, you get Joel, 
Joel has been dated anywhere from the ninth century to the third century. There's, there's very little in the book of Joel that we can just latch onto and say, absolutely, this is the historical reference. And so it's all over the place. I put it as a post-exilic uh, book. We'll see. There, there's no consensus, but that's a popular conservative position to, to hold. Um, Obadiah is clearly after, and then Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are explicitly after the exile. So you have Hosea, Amos, and Jonah, which were northern prophets in the kingdom of Israel. And then you have Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, which were southern prophets focused in and around Jerusalem and uh, Judah. So altogether, let's just go through this. You have 14 chapters in Hosea, followed by three chapters in Joel, nine chapters in Amos, one chapter in Obadiah, four chapters in Jonah, seven in Micah, three in Nahum, three in Habakkuk, three in Zephaniah, two in Haggai, 14 in Zechariah, and four in Malachi. Now notice, we have a general shift here. Generally speaking, we have pre-exilic prophets to the north, followed by pre-exilic prophets to the south, followed by post-exilic prophets. Thematically, you also have, as Jay pointed out, you have sort of these general prophecies of um, sin and judgment and coming destruction. And then once we get to Micah, it's balanced, and then from Nahum Habakkuk and Zephaniah, we get more specific and we're getting closer to Jerusalem. So there tends to be um, this movement from general prophecies for Israel, northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom was supposed to learn from the prophetic voice up north. And then as we get further into the book of the 12th, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. It's almost as if, on a literary level, it's as if the armies of Assyria and Babylon are marching and, and they're getting closer to the capital city. And at the beginning of the book of the 12, it's general. They're far away. There's, there's some prophetic warnings about them. But by the time you get to Zephaniah, Jerusalem's going down. And Zephaniah serves that same canonical function as the end of the book of Kings. Jerusalem is destroyed. And so you have this hard line between Zephaniah and Haggai where you have the exile. And once you get to Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you're after the exile, and you're back in the land. Now, this should sound kind of familiar to the book of Isaiah. On the literary level, you had chapters 1 to 7, which was the introduction, and then, uh, or 1 to 6, the introduction, 7 to 39, which was pre-exilic, 40 to 55, which was post-exilic, and then the restoration, or sorry, exilic, and then the restoration, post-exilic, was 56 to 66. You have a similar literary flow here. Similar, not exact. But that tells us something on the macro-theological level, right? The, 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 the prophets, the biblical prophets, were really zoned in on the day of the Lord, which was the destruction ultimately of Jerusalem. The, the fall of Samaria, or Israel, the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., didn't carry the same... Uh, theological gravitas as the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, the fall of Samaria, the fall of Israel, which is the northern kingdom in 722 BC, serves 
theologically as a warning for Jerusalem. So yeah, they're God's people. Actually, 10 out of the 12 tribes are up there. But God is sort of willing to use them as an object lesson for Jerusalem. And theologically, in the mind of the biblical writers, it's the fall of Jerusalem that has the greatest consequence. Because that's God's holy city. That's where the temple is. That's where God has put his name. That's where God has enthroned the Davidic king. That's where the unconditional promises are. That's where Isaiah or um, Isaac had been sacrificed almost by Abraham. It, it, Jerusalem is the holy city. Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. And so one of the major themes in the book of the 12 then is Jerusalem. And you have this transition from warnings for Jerusalem, and then the warnings zone in on Jerusalem, then Jerusalem falls, and then the restoration, the glorification of Jerusalem. And then in, in, in the restoration of Jerusalem, you have Yahweh reigning as king from Jerusalem, and you also have a promise of Davidic monarchy restored in Jerusalem, and the tension between the two is never resolved. Who's reigning as king from Jerusalem? Is it Yahweh or is it a Davidic king? And I mean, we know the answer, right? Like, that is only resolved in the incarnation of Yahweh as the Davidic king in Jesus of Nazareth. But here we have that tension between the two. Um, so Jerusalem, major theme of the book of the 12, major theme of all of the prophets, actually. The second major theme that I want to draw your attention to is the day of the Lord. You, did you notice that as you're reading through the day of the Lord? And it's hard to know, well, what are they talking about? What is the historical reference to the day of the Lord? Because in Joel, it's, it's locusts, and then it's an army, and, and then you get the day of the Lord down here in Zephaniah. It's the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and then sometimes it seems like with, with Nahum and others, it's this apocalyptic cosmic day of judgment. So what is it? What is the day of the Lord? And this has confused pastors and Christians and scholars for a long time. This is what I understand the day of the Lord to be. I understand there to be three reference to the day of the Lord. The first one is a general any catastrophe. Any catastrophe. So um, in Joel, let's just use Joel as an example, it's, it was an unknown to us locust plague. The locusts came in, ate up all the crops around Jerusalem, and the people di didn't know if they were going to live, and probably a lot of people died. So that, that becomes a day of the Lord, a, a day of judgment. It's, a, it's Deuteronomy 28 coming home to roost. And what's in Deuteronomy 28? The curses, right. It's a really important chapter to know in biblical theology. So the coming of the locusts, it, it reminds you of Deuteronomy 28, and before that, it reminds you of that plague in Egypt. And it, it's God's judgment, because there's nothing that just happens in the natural world apart from God's divine sovereignty. And it, it has to be tied in somehow to, to God saying, repent and come back to me. So the locust is one example, but I would say any catastrophe was understood as the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment, a day of warning. But all of these general, catastrophic, natural disasters were ultimately pointing forward to what is really the, the pivotal day of the Lord in biblical theology, which is the fall of Jerusalem. 
So you get these, this locust plague is just a warning about the fall of Jerusalem because that's a climactic curse in Deuteronomy 28. Jerusalem will fall. and you, I, I mean, Jerusalem's not named in Deuteronomy 28, but it's implied. And you'll be kicked out of your land and the Davidic monarchy will be chopped down and, and your temple will be burned to the ground and God's presence won't be in your midst. And it's the undoing of the exodus and, and the giving of the land and everything. So that's the day of the Lord where covenant is broken. Yahweh comes as a divine warrior in judgment and you're left in ashes. You're in exile and the theological crisis that be emerges from that is threefold. One, is there a God in heaven or not? Like maybe we've made this all up. Or number two, if there is a God in heaven, will he be angry forever? Or three, is there some hope for us on the other side of judgment? And the prophetic witness is always destruction is sure to come, but on the other side of, of, of this curse and destruction is hope. Now, this brings us to the ultimate day of the Lord, which we do see glimmers of here, and we see it ultimately in the restoration sections of these prophets. It's the final judgment day. It's the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. That's still future. The day of the Lord is still future. So what you have is sort of like Russian dolls. The ultimate day of the Lord, the antitype, if we're using that language. Antitype doesn't mean like I'm against the type. It means the reality. The reality is the final judgment. The best shadow of that final judgment, the best picture, the best type of the final judgment for all humanity is the destruction of Jerusalem. Because to destroy Jerusalem is to destroy the world. Because that's where God dwells. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's good. There is two destructions of Jerusalem, which we'll get into when we get into the New Testament. Yeah, so Scott brought that up. You get two destructions of Jerusalem. You have 586 B.C. and then 70 uh, 70 years after Christ, so you're right. Um, but let's put those two together right now. The destruction of Jerusalem is the best type of the final judgment. And then inside that, you have pictures of the fall of Jerusalem, which are like locust plagues or famines in the land or uh, a military defeat or a siege or something like that, where, where there are warnings that if you're not careful, if you don't repent, if you don't humble yourself, Jerusalem will fall. So you, does everyone see how this works? In the prophetic literature then, you gotta think day of the Lord is any kind of judgment, which is a warning about the fall of Jerusalem, which happens in 586 BC, which is a picture of the final judgment. So I'm gonna say one more thing and then we'll go through this. In our macro typology then, we have Slavery in Egypt, which is slavery to sin, right? Then you have the Passover after 10 plagues where they're delivered from their slavery to sin through the blood of a lamb, which is fulfilled by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're delivered from our slavery fr from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ the lamb and we are baptized in water just as Israel was baptized through the Red Sea and then ultimately through the Jordan River. 
Then we have, after our baptism, we're not in the new heavens and new earth. We're not in heaven. We're in this Christian life, which is hard. And this Christian life is humbling us and testing us to make sure that we truly believe. And if we truly have faith, like Joshua and Caleb, we will enter into the promised land. So that's the Torah, which we went over. Now we get into the prophets. The book of Joshua is the return of Christ in Revelation 19. And Joshua takes the promised land, okay, establishes it. And in the promised land, there's a Davidic kingdom. I'm going to double back to this in a minute. This is when all of the prophetic writings are written. They're all about this period of time in the promised land. Then in 586 BC, you have the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the day of the Lord, which is typologically tied to the final judgment. And then after the final judgment or the the destruction of Jerusalem, God restores his people 70 years later. You have books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which talk about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem. So the the Persians defeat the Babylonians and give a remnant of, of Jews back Jerusalem and they rebuild Jerusalem and you have a new temple, you have a new city with city walls and you have the teaching of the Torah through Ezra. We're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah next, next week which is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem that comes down to heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. So if we look at this then, Revelation 19 is the book of Joshua. Revelation 20 is the end of 2 Kings. And then you have references to it all through the prophetic literature of the day of the Lord, the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And then you have the new Jerusalem, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which is Revelation 21 and 22. So what do we do with all this monarchical history? What do we do with all this prophetic activity? on the typological level. Well, I think we can do a couple of things. We can say it's the church age, which I don't believe, but that would be an all-millennial point of view, meaning, well, I won't get into that. I don't have time. I just want you to know there's another view because I'm going to give you a different view. So this is not binding on you, but it's just an idea for you to consider. Or in Revelation 20, six times in five verses, we hear that Jesus Christ, when he returns and takes back the world, will reign on the reign on the throne of David for a thousand years. So it might be that Jesus is going to fulfill this whole section of the Old Testament typologically in the millennial kingdom before the final judgment. Possible. Which would mean then the prophetic literature is going to make a whole lot more sense after we get through with the millennial kingdom. It's hard for us to understand, I would suggest to you, Because so much of what is written there is about the millennial kingdom, which we're just not a part of. And so it's writing about the millennial kingdom through the the typology of the monarchical history from 1000 BC to 586 BC. So of course it's like, how do we make sense of all of this? We look for major themes. And the, the major themes in this period of Israel's history is this. You're going to fail to keep covenant with God, which means there's going to be a judgment, a day of the Lord, and after that judgment, it's through the judgment that you're going to have hope for a new Jerusalem. And that's what you get really clear in, the, in these minor prophets. 
destruction of Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, New Eden, Messianic King, everything is good, perfect. And what you get in the Minor Prophets, which is amazing that the Jews missed it in the first century, is the nations. Jacob leads the nations to Zion to worship God. So what I've done here is try to just extrapolate major themes and give you a narrative background for reading this literature. Is this, I have to admit, I said this before, this whole monarchical history, is it typological of the millennial kingdom? I have to acknowledge to you that I've never read that anywhere and it's never good to be creative and original. But I just, when you, when you do what we've done, there's a gaping hole right here and you have a six-fold mention of a millennial kingdom right where you would expect it to be in Revelation 20. So it makes me wonder. But I don't want to oversell it because I don't know. Okay, so let's go through this. We're going to look at the book of Hosea to begin with. The book of Hosea in both the Septuagint and the Tanakh version of the book of the Twelve is at the head of the book of the Twelve. And this is because we're supposed to understand the entire corpus, all 12 books, through the lens of God's relationship with Israel as a marriage relationship. So the book of the Twelve opens with this real-life historical parable of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer is this adulterous woman. We don't know if she's an adulterous woman before she's married to, to Hosea or not. But ultimately, she commits adultery and she's in this actual sort of uh, organized prostitution ring, it seems, more than just a one-time affair. And Hosea is told to go and to redeem her, to, to purchase her, to buy her back and to love her unconditionally. That's the first three chapters of Hosea. So, so that's the lens through which we're going to understand all of these prophecies. It's, it's, this is a heart-wrenching. This is not just this aloof God bringing down judgment on his people, Israel or Judah or Jerusalem or the nations. This is a God who's entered into a, a, a marital covenant with a people and they've betrayed him. So through chapters 4 through 10, you get all kinds of examples of Israel's uh, apostasy, spiritual harlotry, political adultery. And so it's basically a, a, a defense, a divine defense for why God would be right to sell Israel into um, slavery, to issue her a divorce statement, to uh, renege on the covenant promises. But then in chapter 11, there's this turn, and it looks like God is going to affect a final divorce near the end of chapter 10. But then in chapter 11, God says, he shifts the metaphor. And all of a sudden, Israel, Ephraim, becomes his son, a little toddler who could barely walk. And God cries out, how could I reject you, Ephraim, my son? And you get this sort of picture of him, of God trying to help Ephraim to walk, even though Ephraim is stumbling. And, and this is probably where Jesus drew from for the prodigal son. This, this picture of God as, as a father who would just look for his son and run to his son, even though his son has no right to the family inheritance. So you get a shift in the metaphor there. Um, and then in chapters 12 and 13, you get a review of 
you know, Israel's uh, unfaithfulness is nothing new. They've always been unfaithful, but God will heal them. And at the very beginning of the book, you had uh, Hosea and Gomer had three children. You had Jezreel, No Mercy, and Not My People. And each one of them were named for the promise of future judgment. Jezreel against the house of Ahab, and then Not My People and No Mercy for Israel more broadly. And at the end, we get this, this promise of healing. You're my people. And whereas it was said of you, no mercy or not beloved, depending on your translation, Hebrew or Greek, I call you now mercy, or I call you beloved. And at the very end of chapter 14, let he who has ears listen. Meaning, this is not just about a particular generation in Israel's history. This is about all of Israel, not just all of Israel, but all of the nations. This is how God deals with people. He, he hates sin. He hates unfaithfulness. But he is such a good God that he takes an adulterous wife and a stumbling child and redeems them and heals them. And we end with this picture of a new Eden. And why a new Eden, right? Because you have a picture of Adam and Eve in Eden, in Genesis, where you have this perfect marriage which is supposed to reflect God in humanity, and, and you also have God in perfect communion with people, which is the total antithesis of the previous 13 chapters. So that sets the tone now for the book of the 12. And we move forward from Hosea to the book of Joel. And Joel, uh, no historical reference that are very clear, but what we do have in the book of Joel is the introduction of another major theme for reading the book of the 12, which is the day of the Lord. And so we have in chapters 1 and 2, two different days of the Lord with a twofold call to repentance. So the first one is you get this picture of the prophet calling the people to the temple to repent of their sin because God has sent a plague of locusts. And these locusts are described almost like an army, but it's very clear in the text that we're not talking about an army, like a flesh and blood army of, of soldiers. We're talking about a, a God's army of insects who have done as much damage as, as an actual military army would do because the people are going to starve. It's like they're being besieged by the Lord himself. Then there's a call for repentance, and then the prophet says, just as God sent locusts, next time he's going to send people. And there's no referent for this. What is this about? Is this about, um, about 586 BC or is it about the end of the world? It's probably about both. It, it's intentionally vague. It's the day of the Lord. It's vague. It's God's curses against sin as he has promised. But in the second half of chapter 2, after this twofold call to repentance, God promises if you repent, if you humble yourselves, I will respond to your repentance with divine mercy. The last major section is the judgment of the Lord. You have the condemnation of the nations, probably a reference to this army here. So God will use Gentiles to um, punish his people, which we see with Assyria and Babylon. He's also going to use armies at the end of the age. We'll get to that in Zechariah. But ultimately, people who are not in relationship with God and God uses them, he will punish them for their arrogance. We get that at the beginning of chapter 3. In the second half of um, chapter 3, again, we get these pictures of a new tree and a new Eden. 
So Hosea and Joel end kind of in the same spot. And this is setting, again, the the tone for the book of the 12. Judah will be redeemed. A remnant will return. There's hope on the other side of judgment. Intentionally vague book because it's, it's meant thematically to introduce us. It's a gateway through which we understand the whole book. So here's our... Our double gateway. Just like in the Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2. Those two Psalms are meant to give you an orientation for how to read the whole Psalter. So you have the book of Hosea and Joel working in tandem to give you direction for how to read the book of the 12. God loves his people. He's like a husband who's been, um, who, who's been cheated. Like a father who, who loves his son who will punish his wife and his children but will ultimately buy them back. So you have to read the book of the 12 through that lens. But also, there's a day of the Lord. And if you humble yourself, you'll come through the judgment. That's your hope. But the judgment will come absolutely certain. There's no way around it. Okay, so there's our introduction. Now we go into the book of Amos. Now we're going to start to get specific. And remember what I said. Imagine, on the literary level, God is bringing judgment closer to Jerusalem. And we start in Amos far away. So in Amos, the prophet begins to prophesy judgment oracles against all of Israel's neighbors. And we're talking about the northern kingdom. Amos is a northern prophet where he's prophesying to the northern nations, I should say. So judgment against all of Israel's neighbors. And if you had a map and you charted these oracles against the nations, it starts at the furthest about, and then as we cycle around, we're getting closer and closer to Israel. And so it's becoming more and more uncomfortable. By the time you get to chapter 2 through 6, all of the oracles are oracles of warning and destruction for Israel itself, the northern kingdom. And so we see there's judgment coming against Israel and then a bunch of warnings and then oracles of destruction uh, basically saying that Israel's not going to repent and this is the destruction that is coming but then there's an invitation to repent and then woe oracles. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And that's, that's the, the harshest genre of prophecy. When you get to a woe oracle, you're right on the uh, precipice of judgment and destruction. After that, Chapter 7 through 9, God gives the prophet visions of what it's going to be like when Israel is destroyed. And then just four verses, or five verses at the end of chapter 9, where there is a little hint of hope. And this is really remarkable, because remember, Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom. And at the very end of the book of Amos, there's this hope that even for the northern kingdom, there's going to be the reestablishment of the house of David over Israel, which is expanding David's reign, right? Because since Solomon's reign ended, David's house has been restricted to Judah. So there's this idea that the house of David will restore his sovereignty over all Israel, and then it goes even further, all the nations. So that's exactly like the flow of the book, right? We start with all the nations, and then we're getting in closer to Israel. Then we get destruction, And then we get David, who should be down in Jerusalem, in Judah, reigning over Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and then all the nations. So you see the symmetry. And so we see the folding in of the nations. There's hope even for the nations on the other side of judgment. 
Moving on to the book of Obadiah. Now this prophecy is specifically rooted in history. And this is interesting. We have to ask, why is it placed here? Because Obadiah is a post-exilic prophet. Because um, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the Edomites, and the Edomites are descendants of Esau, right? So you have this brotherly thing going on between Israel, Jacob, and Edom, Esau. And when, when Babylon came in and destroyed what was left of Jacob, which was Judah, specifically Jerusalem, not only did the Edomites do nothing to help, but they celebrated the fall of Jerusalem, and they, they kind of came in after. They didn't ally themselves with Babylon, but they came in after, and they just sort of um, reaped the spoils. They, it was like a, a, they didn't help, and they, they celebrated, it and they came in and saw, how can we profit? Yeah, like turkey vultures, like vultures. And, and God says, that's not, that's not okay. And so this book is very specific. Because Edom acted that way, the whole nation, all of Esau's descendants are, um, are told that they're going to be destroyed. And they're going to be wiped off the pages of history, which has happened. There are no Edomites anymore. In the middle of this book, verse 15 as for Edom, so also with the nations. And we're reminded of the covenant that God made with Abraham, right? In Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so you get an indirect allusion there that just as Edom celebrated the downfall of Israel, so anyone who celebrates the destruction and downfall of God's people, Israel, will be cursed. So we have to be careful as a church. We talked about this in election, right? It's not that we have to agree with everything that the nation of Israel does, but we have to hope for their good. We have to work for their good. We, 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 we don't become anti-Semitic. We don't try to replace them with the church. We, we say our goal is to see God's unconditional promises come to fruition in the national experience of Israel. And we don't seek to stand in a position of profit or celebration at their apostasy, right? So um, at the end, so from verses 16 through 21, we're told that anyone, all of the nations that acted as Edom did will be destroyed. And then we're told that there's going to be a remnant in the end of Jacob, and that remnant will come back to Jerusalem. And it's not very specific, but we're told that the Lord will reign over all. I don't know the exact words, but it's kind of vague. But the image there, especially if we're reading the book of 12 together, this is in this new Eden, and we're specifically talking about the downfall and restoration of Jerusalem. So we have this idea that the new Eden is going to be centered around the new Jerusalem, and God's going to reign as king there. This is the introduction of that idea in the book of the 12. God's going to reign over all the nations from a new Jerusalem. So don't side with the enemies of Yahweh and don't celebrate the downfall of his people because a remnant of Jacob will return. And I I just really think we're seeing the fulfillment of verses 17 and 18 in history right now. The return of ethnic Jews and there's going to be a turning to Christ, I believe. Anyway, moving on to the book of Jonah. Jonah is probably the best known. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I want us to focus in on um, how it fits in the book of the 12. We started with 
Hosea, then Amos, or Joel, then Amos, then Obadiah, now Jonah. Now Jonah shifts. We've been thinking about Israel. We've been thinking ultimately in, in Obadiah about Jerusalem. So we're getting closer to Jerusalem. And now we're way over in Nineveh. Right? Because God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria. And I want you to go and, and call on them to repent or I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah ran away. He went to Joppa. He got on a ship and he was tr sailing as far away as he could get. There's a big storm. So these pagan sailors who sh don't know anything about God are more faithful than Jonah. He says, throw me over. He gets thrown over. He wants to die. He'd rather die than go and preach a, s a sermon of repentance to the Ninevites. And uh, a big fish swallows him up, spits him out. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. So begrudgingly, Jonah goes. He gives a five-word sermon in Hebrew. Forty more days and the city will be overthrown or turned over. And they all repent. And he's angry about it. And God saves the, the city. Um, and Jonah goes up on a hill and sits and sulks. And God causes a vine to come over him. And he loves the vine. Then it shrivels up. And he's all mad about that. And then God says, you really love that vine that was just there for one day? Should I not care about a great city like Nineveh? Now, put yourself in Israel's shoes, though. By the time you're reading the book of the 12, you know that it's because God preserved Nineveh that Israel fell in 722 B.C. Now, that's the political side. We know that Israel fell because of their apostasy. But God preserved pagan Nineveh through their repentance in the days of Jonah long enough that Assyria rose to become the dominant power for a season and they destroyed Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel. So Jonah, I, I don't doubt that it's a historically accurate caricature of him, but he personifies what you would feel like as a Jew. Why would God preserve the very people that would then destroy us. And it introduces that wrinkle. It also shows more broadly that salvation is not just for the Jews. It's not just for Israel, not just for Judah. It's not just for Jerusalem. That anyone of any nation that humbles themselves before God, God will show mercy. And, and Jonah knew that. And so there's a lot in, in the book of the 12 for us Gentiles, us non-Jews. Going on to the book of Micah. Micah is like a mini book of Isaiah. They knew each other. They prophesied at the same time. They even plagiarized one another. Um, I believe it's chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 in Isaiah, is in the book of Micah. So who came up with it first? We don't know. But their message was so in sync. And if you read the two, if, if, if Isaiah is too, too long for you, then focus in on the seven chapters of the book of Micah because the message is almost identical. So it starts in chapters 1 and 2 with judgment oracles against Israel in the north, which is going to fall in Micah's lifetime. He's prophesying right at the turn of the century from the 8th to 7th century. And in 722, so it could have been 10 years, 15 years, 30 years at the most from the preaching of Micah to the fall of Samaria. Samaria and, and Ephraim and Joseph and Israel are all words for the northern kingdom. So, um, and Samaria being the capital city. 
but sometimes it's used for the whole thing. So there's these judgment oracles against Samaria, the capital of the north, or the north altogether, and then judgment oracles against Judah, and then we get specific complaints of, of God about what's going on here, and God says it's the fault of the leaders. It's the priests and the kings that are leading people to worship other gods. They're, they're, they're not uh, reigning with justice and righteousness. They're, they're allowing social injustice to creep in, they're allowing the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. A lot of things that we still care about, which is why the book of Micah is loved today, because a lot of what we see in our generation is exactly what's described here. And then God, so God is angry with the shepherds, and at the end of chapter two, he comes in, and he says, I'm going to have to shepherd you myself. There's a lot of passages in the prophets where God describes himself as a shepherd. In Ezekiel, same thing. We're gonna see it again in Zechariah. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he's drawing on this, this motif in the prophetic literature, but he's saying something of himself that is said in the prophetic literature always about God. So it says something about Jesus' self-understanding, why they were so mad at him. How can you say you are the good shepherd? Yahweh is a good shepherd, exactly. Now, remember, we're getting closer to Jerusalem. We had sort of this vague picture of it um, in, in a previous book, but here in chapter 3, it's explicit for the first time, Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem is going to fall. We're like some 300 years before that. Or 200 anyway. 200, 250. But right after that in chapter 4, there's going to be a remnant that's restored to a new Jerusalem. What I love about Micah is how clear it is. Jerusalem's going to fall, but a remnant will come back, and Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And then in chapter 4, 8 through 5, 15, some of the most beautiful prophecy in all of uh, the Bible of the Davidic king. This is where Bethlehem is, is promised, right? You, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, though you're small, from you will come ruler of nations. The Davidic king is going to restore a remnant from Assyria and Babylon, which is just meaning from the ends of the earth, the Davidic king is going to call Jews from all over the earth that have been scattered, call them back to Jerusalem, and he's going to reign over them. And then uh, we get back in chapter 6 and 7 about Israel's corruption is rebuked, but that God will restore. So the major theme of, of Micah is social injustice in the land forces God to punish his people, to judge them. But on the other side of judgment is restoration and hope and forgiveness. And in the mix there is the fall of Jerusalem in judgment, the restoration of, Jeru of Jerusalem in healing, and the establishment of a Davidic king who's born in Bethlehem. What, it, what I love about this is, you know, 8th century, late uh, or early 7th century, B.C., and all of this is fulfilled 700 years later with Christ. Gives me great confidence. Okay, so we're at the halfway point of the books, but they get shorter. Yes? Yeah, go ahead. Very good. Wine and strong drink. 
not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, Joseph. Okay, we come to Nahum, and here in chapter 1 of, of, of Nahum, we have God destroying the, the self-exalted. So it's very vague. We don't know who he's talking about. Now, in your Bible, it will say an oracle against Nineveh. But in the actual text itself, it's not absolutely clear. You have the, the translators and editors reading back into the first chapter what they know is coming in later chapters. And what I want to emphasize here is it's intentionally vague because we're dealing with Nineveh on the typological level, always. God is, loves typology. Um, but then we get to chapter 2 and we find out that Nineveh is destroyed. So you've got to put this together. Jonah, Nineveh is saved because they repented. Then Micah, it's, it's explicit, but in history we know through the prophecy of Micah and in the lifetime of Micah, the Ninevites and the Assyrians, same group, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, come in and destroy Samaria and Israel. So there's a flow here, right? Nineveh was saved to destroy Israel, but now we get to Nahum and Nineveh will be destroyed. So you see how the book of the 12 flows together and you get a lot more out of the book of Nahum. The reason I'm bringing this up, you get a lot more out of the book of Nahum if you read it in context of the 12. There's a, there's a macro plot that's happening here. Nineveh is destroyed. In the first 13 verses of chapter 2, you get very descriptive dis- description of uh, the destruction of Nineveh. And then at the end of chapter 3, we find out that everyone that is like Nineveh will be brought low, and there will be a remnant of Nineveh's victims that will clap their hands in celebration. On the typological level, then, we know God will use wicked people and wicked nations for his purposes, but through whatever geopolitical catastrophes happen in the history of the world, including World War I and II, including the Holocaust, there will be a remnant of God's people, both Israel and Gentiles, who come through that judgment and that destruction and they will see the downfall of the very people and the very nations that God used to execute judgment. They'll see the destruction of those in total and the remnant will celebrate. So when you're thinking about world politics, just remember, God is in control. He uses wicked people. He uses people like ISIS. He's using Islam He's using China. He's using Canada. He's using the United States all for his purposes. And it seems like a mess. But at the end, every nation will fall just like Nineveh fell. And a remnant of Jews and Gentiles from all of the nations will celebrate at the return of the king. Now, there's nothing about the return of the king here, but in the broader book of the 12, that's when it happens, in the restoration of Jerusalem. When Israel leads uh, people from all nations to worship their king, Yahweh, which is Christ, in Jerusalem. So this, Nahum is a very important book typologically. Moving on to Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts in this, we're getting close, so remember, we're getting closer to 586 B.C., so the Ninevites fell when Babylon was on the rise. God used Babylon to punish the the Ninevites. Now Babylon is growing in power at the time of Habakkuk, which is during Jehoiachin in Jerusalem, so you remember there's Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, and then we get 
or Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and then you get the fall. And Zedekiah is put in for a decade, and then nothing. So we're right near the end, and Habakkuk is looking around, and he says, okay, the north has fallen. I see just social injustice. I see corrupt leaders. I see um, total perversion of justice in the land. God, what are you going to do about it? And, and Habakkuk is in the tradition of the, the lamentations. He's, he's like a, a lament poet crying out to God, why God, and, and how long are you going to be distant? And God answers him. He says, fine, I'll deal with this injustice, and this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and they're going to rip down your city. And Habakkuk says, what? Like, how is that a good answer? That's not what I'm asking for. Deal with us internally. I don't want to fall. I don't want Jerusalem to fall. And, that, and, and God answers him again. He says, go out on the watchtower and watch what I'm going to do. Because I'm going to do this. Judgment is coming to Jerusalem just as it came to Samaria. And the only hope that you have or anyone of your generation or anyone of any generation when I act this way, remember the fall of Jerusalem is the fall of the world typologically. The only hope when Jerusalem falls the only hope when the world falls is that the righteous will live by faith. It's not going to look like God is winning right at the end. And it's the remnant that says, well, God is in control, and even though it looks like all hell is breaking loose over the face of the earth, I believe that God is in control, and he's going he's to bring a remnant through this. And Habakkuk says, okay, I will live by faith. And this is what Paul picks up in the book of Romans. It, it's by faith. Now, when we read it in the book of Romans, we're thinking Jesus and believe in the incarnation, believe in atonement on the cross, believe in resurrection. That's true. But we believe in those things because Jesus is our Passover. And while all of this destruction is happening all around, when the Babylonians are overtaking us, typologically, we hide ourselves in Christ. And it's by faith in Christ that we come through the final judgment into the restoration of the world, a new Jerusalem. And that's the book of Habakkuk. Um, in chapter 3, you get this portrait of God coming out as a divine warrior. And Habakkuk says, I'll wait for that. I will wait for you. Then we get to Zephaniah, and Zephaniah is the book, the prophetic book. I mean, Jeremiah does it too, but in the book of the 12, Zephaniah is the book that describes the fall of Jerusalem. So it's finally happened. We started way over here, general warnings, then we had uh, in Amos, oracles against the nations, then we find out judgments coming to the northern kingdom in Israel, then we get warnings of the fall of Jerusalem when we get into Micah. It's getting closer and closer in Habakkuk and then Zephaniah, Jerusalem falls. And it, this book begins in the first six verses with apocalyptic imagery. And this is again because, uh, you know, the the imagery here didn't actually ha come to pass literally when Jerusalem fell. But what you have there is what Scott was talking about, the mountain range. You have the fall of Jerusalem prophesied, but you also have the fall of the world prophesied at the same time, and they get blurred together. Because it will be a cataclysmic apocalypse when judgment comes against the world. 
And we see that in Zephaniah. So what is Zephaniah talking about? The fall of Jerusalem or the fall of the world? He's talking about both. And in the second half of chapter 1, we get a description of the fall of Jerusalem. And then right after that, the destruction of the nations. And then again, back to the destruction of Jerusalem. It's just total devastation. And then in chapter 3, you get this purification both of the nations and of Jerusalem and of, of Israel. And there you have again the Lord. I believe, and you know, there's kind of a lot of material to remember, but I believe it's not a, it, there's no direct reference to a Davidic king. It's the Lord is king. And I love that tension. Now, I might be wrong about that. I have to go back and read it. But throughout the, the book of the 12 and the prophets, sometimes it's Yahweh who is king and sometimes it's David that's king. I think here it's the Lord. Yeah, the Lord is the king you miss in Zephaniah. So that's, that's exciting because Jesus is the king. David is the king, and, and you get both together. So again, the same themes, right? Day of the Lord, major theme in the book of the 12, destruction of Jerusalem, and then a new hope. Oh. Now we move on to Haggai. Okay, oh, let's just zoom out. So we've made it to 586 B.C. So right here between Zephaniah and Haggai, that's the exile. Once we get into Haggai, we have three books left. And this is how the Septuagint Old Testament ends, right? We, ha we come back and we have three books after the exile which prepare us for, for the gospel. So Haggai is fairly simple. The main message is build the temple. The people came back to the land and they were more concerned about building their own houses. They, they were more worried about their own wealth. And what God says is like, so how's that working out for you? I keep destroying your crops. I keep emptying your wine vats. I keep blowing down your houses. Like God is pictured here like the big bad wolf. Like, why don't you care about me? You're, have you learned nothing from exile? And so God raises up Haggai and Zechariah, if we read Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll find that out next week. But also Zerubbabel. And so those three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a descendant of Jehoiachin, which is a Davidic king. And, and God, or Davidic, he's in the line of the Davidic kings. And so there's this great hope. And God says, what's the holdup? You're back in the land, as I prophesied through Jeremiah, build the temple. That should be priority number one because I'm not going to establish a king until you got the temple set. This is a kind of reading between the lines here, but you see that because at the very end, he's going to talk about kingship. The focus is temple, and then he ends the book with kingship. Um, in the middle of the book, God says, if you build the temple, I promise I will fill it with my presence. I will dwell among you again which is a bit curious. The Haggai is a difficult book. Not to understand, um, it's not long, but the glory of the Lord never does fill the second temple. But Haggai says that it will. At the end of the book, we're told that Zerubbabel, the Davidic heir, is like a signet ring on God's hand. But then we find out that Zerubbabel just disappears off the pages of history. Probably assassinated by the Persians for wanting to reestablish the Davidic monarchy. So, is Haggai um, a false prophet? Those two things don't happen. Or do they? This is, 
when Jesus comes in on a donkey, we're going to get to that in Zechariah, and he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple, that's a fulfillment here of God's presence in the temple. And then Jesus says, you know, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He effectively replaces. But the glory of the Lord, or, or, or the glory of the second temple is greater than the glory of the first temple because the incarnate God stands in it. This is not a reference to Herod's improvements. This is a reference to the incarnate God standing in the temple and cleansing it and replacing it with himself and dying on the cross. And then Zerubbabel as a signet ring, we're going to find out that he's going to take off that ring and throw it away. But what God is saying there is not that Zerubbabel will be the Messiah. He's not saying that Zerubbabel will reestablish the Davidic monarchy. But Zerubbabel is proof positive that the Davidic monarchy is still possible. So he's a signet ring. Signet ring is, you, if you're the king, you would get some um, wax over your, you'd write a letter, fold it up, put up wax, and then you'd seal it with your ring, say this is with my authority. So God punched history with his signet ring Zerubbabel saying, I promise to keep my covenant with David. That's how we, we want to understand that. So the prophecy of Haggai, I've kind of been all over the place, but basically it's build the temple, the people obey, they build the temple, it's not as spectacular as the previous temple, God says, don't worry about it, it will be filled with greater glory, and then at the end, he says the Davidic kingdom will rise again. We move on now to Zechariah, Zechariah is a long book, relatively speaking, in the book of the twelve, I just want to focus in on a couple of main themes, because we're wrapping it up. The first six verses, we have these night visions. So God is speaking to the prophet through night visions. We also find out that, that God wants them to rebuild the temple. These night visions are basically saying, and I don't have time to go through them, that God is all-present and all-knowing. He's restored his people. He will cleanse his priesthood, and he will establish his king. That's those night visions. But what's really interesting is the emphasis is not on the royal king but on the royal priest and what's the name of the royal priest in the book of Zechariah Joshua now some people would say that's just a historical coincidence I don't think so why is it we have Joshua and Zerubbabel Zerubbabel means I think something like the seed of Babel or something and you have Joshua which is the name of the Messiah and he is crowned in chapter 8. He's crowned. Priests are not crowned. But Joshua the priest is crowned. I, I just think it's significant that God is saying, yes, I've got a royal thing going on, and Zerubbabel is not d uh, ignored. There's a, there's a royal line. Zerubbabel's there. But all of a sudden, the emphasis is on the priestly line. It's cool. And then in some of the the most quoted Old Testament passages when it comes to the passion of Christ come from chapters 9 through 11, or 9 through 14, I guess. It's the most quoted part. These are Easter scriptures. Your, your, your king is coming to you riding on a donkey. Now, the thing is, try and read uh, 9 through 14 with, and try and strip away the New Testament momentarily. Because in chapter 9, what you actually have is 
Yahweh coming as a divine warrior. So when we think of your king is coming to you riding on a donkey, we think pacifism. We think meek and mild. But Jesus was upending expectations there. This is not a prophecy of a meek and mild return of Yahweh as king. Chapter 9 is about the divine warrior. The divine warrior is coming to take back his kingdom. And, and it's filled with military language. And this king coming on a donkey is, is a king ready for war, ready for battle. Um, so just know that. So when Jesus comes in on a donkey and he doesn't go to war, like that's why everyone's like, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king of David. They're ready to, to, to go to war. And Jesus instead gets crucified, and it just upends everything. They don't understand it. Like, how is this possible? But uh, later on, we get that the king is coming to shepherd his people. The, sh the shepherd will be struck, and the sheep will be scattered. They'll reject him, and so you have the, the, the flock rejects their own shepherd. But then later, this is how the book ends, the shepherd returns, and the sheep look on the one who they've pierced when his two feet land on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives splits. And the, the remnant that's remained after this brutal experience comes into the shelter of their Messiah. And the Messiah, which is Yahweh, which is really confusing because it's David and then it's Yahweh and it's, which one is it? But Yahweh lands with his two feet on the Mount of Olives and he speaks the word and all of Israel's enemies rot like in the, in the Last Crusade, you know, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. They all do that. When they pick the wrong chalice. Yeah, they rot in their sockets, their tongues roll up, and then anyone who hasn't died that way, they stick each other with, with swords. And they all die. This is Revelation 19. Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives as a warrior, speaks the word, everyone dies. And then what you have in chapter 14 is a new Jerusalem and a new Eden in the same place. So I kind of, I think, converged them earlier in the book of the 12, which I think if you read it carefully, they don't converge until here very clearly. But here, very clearly, the New Jerusalem is the New Eden. And you have this, this amazing culmination of all of biblical theology at the end of history, at the return of the king, which is the shepherd, which is Yahweh, which is David. And Israel, who had rejected him when he came in as the divine warrior, receives him. This is amazing scripture. So I commend it to you. And the messianic kingdom is duly established which leaves us with just Malachi you would think we should end there but we don't the book of Malachi is a series of six disputations between Israel and God so God and, and the people are fighting the, it's a very pessimistic way to end the book of the twelve why not end in Zechariah why do we have to now, like after this just beautiful picture of Yahweh king, Davidic kingdom, New Eden, now God's people are fighting with him. Because that's the reality. There's this fighting, fighting, fighting. And you, one of them is all about marriage, right? And so some commentators say that you have this bookend with Malachi and Hosea. It's this reminder. Remember how we started this cheated husband. And they're expressing that in their social injustice. But at the very end, God says, I'm going to punish the wicked and there's hope for the humble. 
sort of like wisdom literature. There's two paths. You've read the book of the 12 now. You know what's going to come. Destruction is coming. By the time you get to Malachi, you saw it in general days of the Lord. You saw it in the fall of Jerusalem. There's this promise at the end of Zechariah for this coming day of the Lord, which is against the whole universe, the whole world. There's two paths. Are you with me or are you against me? Are you going to dispute with me or are you going to humble yourself? And then at the very end, it's a short chapter, uh, or at the very end it says, keep the law, keep Moses. And then it says, I'm going to send Elijah. And so what Malachi does is it ties this book of the 12 in with the Torah and the prophets. Keep the Torah, Moses. Learn from the prophets, Elijah. And before the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, I'm going to send Elijah to you so you have notice, so you can be turned back to me. I'm not going to come as a thief in the night. I'm going to send you Elijah, which is really interesting because now Jesus comes after John the Baptist, and he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. Why? Now, thief of the night is not used in, in Malachi, but the idea is there that God is saying, I'm not going to surprise you. Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord. Then Jesus says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Why? You've been duly warned. John has come. John has come. Now, think about this. We're going to end here. Just like Peter says in Peter, or 2 Peter 3, why then 2,000 years of history? 2,000 years of history for the world to be duly warned. Elijah has already come back. That's John the Baptist. The great Passover for the ultimate day of the Lord has already been effected. Put your faith in him. But now the lamb that came the first time will come as a lion without warning. Without warning. And so we have to be ready. And that's how the Hebrew Bible ends. Well, in the Septuagint anyway. That's how the book of the 12 ends. So, pretty exciting anthology of books. Um, our job is to go out into the world and to make sure as many people are ready for the day of the Lord because it will come all of a sudden upon us. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the book of the 12. I thank you for these men. There's been so much reading and work and information. I pray that uh, every one of us would glean something from your word. Uh, I thank you for these uh, books that they have presented the gospel to us. They've shown us the, the whole sweep of, of your dealings with humankind. I pray that we would be ready. We know that Elijah has come. Uh, we know that uh, you have come as a divine warrior to shepherd your people. You've been rejected, but you're coming back. You will land on the Mount of Olives, and then everyone who's with you will be saved, and everyone who's against you will be cursed unto eternal damnation. Oh God, when you come, find us ready. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the Davidic King. You are Yahweh, as prophesied. In your name we pray. Amen.